Welcome to Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Junior Doctors Corner. Today I have a financial advisor coming on board and giving us some general advice. It is a very stressful time with COVID-19 going on, but we also have to look after our financial well-being and plan a little bit for the future, don't you agree? Especially since as junior doctors, uh, we actually don't make a lot of money, um, as you and I would know. So before we begin, I want to apologize. This episode took a little while to go live because I actually forgot that I hadn't published it yet. And that was because I uh, gave my group members early access to this episode and I forgot that I hadn't done the publication for the rest of the world. So here we are now. If you ever want access to some exclusive content or early release of podcast episodes, please join me on the Junior Doctors Corner community Facebook group. Now, before we jump right into the interview, I just have a disclaimer that I need to read out to you. So this podcast episode is not to be relied on as personal advice and anything discussed in this episode is general in nature only. So without further ado, let's head over to the interview. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for making the time to join me on Junior Doctors Corner podcast. Pleasure to be here, Dana. Now, can you please tell um, those of our listeners who don't know anything about you a bit about yourself? So I'm a financial planner um, and I focus mainly on uh, junior doctors, uh, registrars. Getting back to history, I mean, I'm a second generation financial planner. Dad did this since you know um, I was a few years old and I started on the front desk and getting coffees and all this sort of stuff when I was 17 years old, straight out of school. Um, you know, had a couple of forays into, I did a Bachelor of Arts in politics, which was completely useless. <laughs> um, and then uh, got back to work again. And yeah, look, I've been pretty much doing it my entire life. I think it's my 23rd year now. So I run my own practice um, with a few employees. I'm the only advisor there. My core strengths are insurance and, and risk protection and things like this because that's what my clients mostly need. Um, I do focus on, um, you know, simple investment concepts and, and, and building that ongoing, but I don't pick shares and say, geez, Woolies is going to do this well this week or anything like this. It's, mm. it's just about um, structural investment advice rather than specific things. And, yeah, I, I guess I'm a needs-must sort of person um, in that you know, some of some of you might know I am married to a doctor, so um, I do. I, I think understand uh, from the inside what it sort of looks like, and I have seen colleagues in the past that, um, you know, you mention you're a doctor, and you can see the dollar signs light up in their eyes, and I think, oh, geez, I'm going to charge this guy. Um, doctors, you know, I don't know if you take this the wrong way at all, Dana, but they're not that much more complex than a plumber or anything like this financially. They each have their special needs and things like this. But, you know, if you do the same thing repetitively, which I do because most of my clients are the same, there's no, you know, need to stop and say, hold on, I need to understand this person um, better and understand how this works because 
you know, many of you have um, uh, similar situations and mm. your pay packets are all pretty much the same depending on where you're working at and what PGY you are. So, mm. <laughs> Absolutely. So you have the, you know, insider knowledge being married to a doctor. So yeah. a- as you know, um, duty doctors' starting salaries are actually quite low despite um, the myth going around in society that uh, we make lots of money mm-hmm. um, and are rolling it in. So between needing enough to live and, you know, paying for expensive courses and exams, as you would know, um, to advance our skills, is it really worth our while, you know, at such early stages of our career to start thinking about investing some of our money now or should we be waiting till we're consultants in in a few years when we're actually earning a lot more i think investing is about um one of the people i used to work for said begin with the end in mind if you're let's say for example investing in uh, to buy a house in a year versus you're investing to say i want to build up a share portfolio over the next 30 years your investment time frame is very different and then consequently your asset allocation is going to be very different. So if you're putting everything into shares, you know, let's say you start at the start of this year and you put everything into shares on your uh, home deposit, you would be kicking yourself now um, because it would be worth, you know, two-thirds, maybe half of what you started with. Um, we do know that the standard oscillation of a market cycle is is uh, five, seven odd years. So if you're invested for at least that time frame, theoretically, if the market started diving at the day you invested, um, it should come back to where you started within five, seven years. So the simple version is don't invest what you can't afford to lose um, is a good way to sort of start off. With. If you are sort of building little bit by little bit, it's hard to diversify to a hard, to a large extent, and people will often use your ETFs and your vanguards and this sort of stuff, and they'll start there, um, which does provide diversification, in, and that's what ETFs do. But it, um, it does mean that you don't have exposure to other asset classes like property and fixed interest and things like this. Um, so you don't have any buffer when the market starts turning around and you sort of can't get out of it. So... Um, that does help, I suppose, in helping you to understand the market and to make mistakes that aren't going to cost you too much because you will make mistakes in investing. It takes uh, patience and it takes the uh, the grit sometimes when the market's falling at a rate of knots to say, no, no, we plan for this, hold on to it, um, don't drop it. And, you know, I'd say this to clients for the last month, I've been repeating it over and over day in, day out. Um but in my head, it's still, you know, it's like, oh, you're going to sell, you're going to sell. Um, <laughs> but I know that that's wrong. If I follow the math, that is wrong. But it, the lizard brain, the you know, the fear and the and uh, the fight or flight takes over and it tells you to do this, even though you know that that's wrong. Um, you know, I've been through, what, four uh, major corrections over, over the years and every time feels exactly the same this is going to be it this is the one you know um, but it's ne- never it so here we go so okay if a junior doctor decides that it is you know part of their life goal or at least their short-term goal um, to invest some money which method should he or she choose if you know like you mentioned shares you mentioned property like what are the pros and cons of each well, shares in this sort of thing, you, you know, if you're not all in one ETF and you're picking specific shares, as long as you're sort of 
um, um, you know, diversifying that. So you're not buying 10 mining companies or something like this. You sort of have access to pull certain parts of your portfolio at different times, which means that you have liquidity. Uh, so even if a share has, dives in value, you can still sell it. Whereas property, um, you know, you can't buy a $2,000 property. I mean, it just doesn't happen. So, you know, best case scenario, you scrape together 50000 maybe 100000 or something like this, and then borrow up, up the hilt. And we all know um, doctors love getting really large lending packages at sort of 95% LVRs and things like this, and then buy a property with it. Um, but when or if a, a renter stops you know, paying rent or you decide you want to uh, dump that property, it's a very long process to do that um, and it's expensive with stamp duty and so on, you know, if you're, you're buying and you're trading. But, you know, selling a share, you're just switching from one to the other. It's it's a very simple process. So it's really about um, the classic pie chart of, you know, how much goes in what what section uh, where you have uh, a little bit in each, in each pile. Um, and consider that as a bird's eye view of, of what you're invested in. It's really down to what your goals are, what you're trying to do with it, what your time frame is. But larger amounts allow you greater diversification. Anything that's really low cost at low value is the way to go, in my opinion, because cost is the one thing that you can control. Let's talk about superannuation um, because that's uh, often a very um, popular question. Should we as doctors be sticking to the one our employer provides or has chosen for us or should we be making additional um, concessional contributions and you know go out and shop for a different super fund? Uh, so superannuation is really just down to orders of magnitude, I suppose. So, or they call it an economy of scale. So, when you're switching from one fund to the next to control costs, if you've got ten thousand dollars in superannuation, it's it's almost a, a moot point. Um, you might be shaving off a twelve dollars a year. It doesn't really make that much difference. Your contributions are what makes a difference at that point. When you get up around the hundred, two hundred thousand, it does make it start making a significant difference. But even then, most super funds run 0.8%, give or take. You do find a few funds out there. So, oh, who was that barefoot guy? Um, Post Plus, I think they had their index fund. Uh, and Rest is doing a, a point or a zero fund, um, so it costs nothing. Without giving you too much detail on that, there's a little thing called derivative swap underneath it. Um, when something's free, you're the product. Um, so I'd be extremely cautious of something like that. But essentially, uh, your job is to sort of continue, you know, making contributions as you sort of uh, uh, do as an employee. When you consider additional contributions, at the moment, unused contributions from the previous year are rolling forward. So we get to put in $25,000 a year. Let's say you're earning, you know, 100, 100 change, um, as a junior doctor, they'll have put in 10. So your 15 has rolled forward from the previous year. You can now put in 40 in this year and claim that as a full tax deduction. Mm. Um, so theoretically, if you're a GP sole trader and you didn't have to put anything in, you could roll forward and put in $125,000 in the fifth year, claim that as a full tax deduction. And that can be beneficial if 
you know, you've triggered a capital gain, you sold a property, you want to write off a bit of tax in that year. It can be really good to have that in the back pocket. So sometimes it's about timing with contributions. Right. And while that slows to the approach of every fortnight and all this sort of stuff is a good way to go, I'd rather, and my advice often, sometimes, it's not personal advice, is as long as you're putting it somewhere like an offset account or somewhere where it's going to be doing something, having it sitting there for a year or two and then putting it at the right time to manage tax can be a real advantage. Keeping in mind that governments tinker with super on a six-monthly basis. So while that is currently working, six months from now they could have cha- we could have changed governments and they could have changed that rule completely. Uh, so you do need to be cautious of things like this popping up and removing uh, the ability to do something like that. Right. Okay. So there is always a little bit of risk involved. There is, yes. So you mentioned at the beginning that your specialty is in insurance. And as you know, being married to um, a doctor, we um, as a profession do come across or uh, get involved in certain things that can be a little bit risky, like needle stick injuries, etc. So with a lot of our um, junior doctors with our super fund, it comes with um, some small level of income protection and needle stick injury, things like that, that sort of insurance. I was advised that these sorts of um, insurances are not often not sufficient to cover expenses that can come out of um, certain injuries that arise out of um, our medical work. So do you have any recommendations insurance-wise what we should be doing to protect ourselves? Uh, well, I don't make any recommendations that aren't on a statement of advice as I'm required mm-hmm. to by law, but generally speaking, um, so the difference with uh, cover that's under a, your superannuation fund is essentially your super fund goes to an insurer and they say offer us something that we can give to a limit. Essentially, that contract can be amended or altered at any any time. When you go directly to an insurer, currently, they can't change the terms of that contract at any point. So as long as you keep paying the premium, they have to hold up their end of the bargain, I guess, simple version. Insurance is really nuanced in that... uh, They've created such a complex web out of it. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. And every super fund and every insurer has its own little bits and pieces. But the needle stick is often a thing that gets a lot of press, and especially around doctors and, you know, sharp little horrible things filled with blood and so on and so forth. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're lurking at every turn, right? Um, so it's a something that triggers that um, point in your brain of, yeah, I might get stuck by a needle. If you can't engage in your occupation because of a medical reason, so if you've, you know, um, got hepatitis and it's neurotic and, you know, it's it's uncurable and so on and so forth and you're a surgeon, you have to have your hands in a cavity and um, due to state law you're unable to do that, then your TPD, your your income protection, it's a medical reason that you can't um, do your job, regardless of whether you've got needles to cover or, or, you know, whatever, it's still a medical reason you can't do your job. So... It's almost a window dressing on the core value. So a lot of um, insurers have, oh, but, you know, we do legal fees or we fly you first class if you injure yourself overseas or something like that, which is, I mean, really it comes down to how much am I insured for? Can I continue to pay my bills? If it's something really significant, can I cover medical costs? And if it's really long-term or, you know, death, which is usually pretty long term, um, (laughs) 
you know, what does that look like for the people left behind and do I leave, leave enough left to fund them and do I leave them in debt and this sort of thing? So it's about sort of weighing that whole thing up. And you can never, a lot of people get bent out of shape about trying to uh, ensure 75% of their income. And Like if you're a surgeon on, you know, close to a million and you're trying to ensure yourself for $750,000 a year, do you need that to live on? Is that appropriate? Uh, can you get by on twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month? Is that appropriate? Um, you know, look, I'd like to think you, if you make, cut a few corners and you know tighten up your belt and maybe bought black and gold instead of the the premium brand, you could probably live on twenty grand a month. It, it sometimes it's it's about um, just having that conversation to say, look, let's ensure uh, you for what you're worth and. and as junior doctors, you guys are worth heaps because your, your uh, future earning potential is not only high, but it's over 30, 40 working years. Um, you're not like the, the trader whose knees give out at age 55. Um, you can continue working on your 70s or 90s if you want to, and it's about having that choice to do so. Um, so uh, the same as investment goes, um, as long as you invest appropriately, don't get yourself up to up to your eyeballs in debt and do silly things. Um, you get to make that choice at 60, 65 of starting your own practice and slowing down or, or choosing what you want to do rather than burning yourself out because you're working yourself to death, literally. As you mentioned earlier, um, you can't make any specific recommendation that you can only give general advice. So if um, junior doctors want to, you know, move forward and actually um, get a financial planner so that they can um, discuss their own personal specific needs, what are some general tips (laughs) or advice on who might be like a good person to go to because like you said there are some people out there the moment they hear that we're doctors there's dollar signs in their eyes and you know (laughs) look I always think it's worthwhile tie kicking a little bit um and look you're probably going to have to pay for that privilege and I think it is worthwhile to think once again if something's free or the product um if you have to book a meeting with somebody and it costs you $200 or something like this um, and you might see two or three uh, different prospects and, you know, see who you fit with and you gel with because, I mean, I do uh, advice across the country but only transactional advice for, for risk and things like this uh, for insurance base. Um, but when it comes down to sort of coaching and, and working with superannuation and long-term planning, which is where the financial planner really um, gives a lot of value about, you know, if you have a question, you pick up the phone, hey, Sean, you know, what should I do with this or what should I do with that? I'm thinking of buying a house and I'm thinking of taking a year off on, you know, I want to do that sounding board from an independent source can be great. So as long as you get along with that person, uh, I think that's really the, the core part of it. I mean, look, check they have qualifications <laughs> Yeah. I mean, obviously, you, you want to look in. So, as of the 1st of January, we have what's called uh, a facey code of conduct. Um, I know medics, I think, get four. Uh, we get like 12. So, that obviously makes our code of conduct better. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not really true because they just counteract each other the whole time. Um, but yeah, we have a code of conduct. All financial advisors are required to have a degree and set and sit um, an ethics exam. So it's becoming more of a profession than it was, um, and you can start to weed these people out quite easily. By uh, advisor ratings is a really good site for this because you get sort of 
people. Look them up on Money Smart. You can see what they've done before, how long they've been in business, what their qualifications are. Money Smart is an amazing um, resource just for everything that you could want to think of as far as financial stuff goes. Um, and trust your gut. If you're getting the willies and someone's saying you have to sign now and run all that sort of stuff, yeah, if those alarm bells are ringing, um, you've got to be cautious. I know, you know, a few hundred advisors, maybe a few thousand, but I'd probably recommend four. Oh, wow. Um, you know, because for people who in, in certain areas and they know this area well, um, and I trust. Um, but, yeah, I mean, out of the few thousand, I know I would pick four. Uh, so it's sort of difficult to say, but, you know, other people are competent in different areas. I just haven't worked with them because why would I ever take advice from another advisor? I know enough to do it myself and it's cheap. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fair point. enough. Well, thank you for that. That was really helpful. Um, so if any of our listeners are interested in getting in touch with you and I hear that you have a very good resource on your website um how can they find you you know to perhaps get some advice uh my primary um, website is nlrfinancial.com so november oscar romeo financial.com and if you go to the uh, medical practitioners or medical professionals page you can scroll down there's a white paper there called the five seasons of uh, financial planning for doctors hopefully that will give some insight as to um things you should be thinking about at what times. Uh, It was really focused on a needs-must sort of approach. So, you know, don't go out and get yourself a massive trust with a a bear trust with all kinds of cruel things underneath it. Um, You know, when you're just in medical school, I mean, it's it's going to be sitting on the shelves and you're going to be doing three tax returns a year for no reason. Um, (laughs) You know, yes, it could be handy to have that in future, but at this point, probably unnecessary. So the same applies in a lot of concepts. Um, Do what you have to um, and be comfortable with the decisions that you make, I suppose. And so final question, I ask all my podcast guests, what are one or two things that are keeping you sane in your crazy busy life right now, especially with what's going on with the world right now? Yeah. Um, Well, it's not getting out and about at the moment. Uh, (laughs) uh, Fortunately, I like to cook. Yeah, um, three girls in the house and a a cat that yells at me all the time. But uh, (laughs) so... The, the two little ones, the one and three-year-old, will probably eat one in three meals that I'll give them. Um, but, you know, they'll eat white rice or plain pasta, so that's something. Um, and, yeah, that, that allows me to take a lot of steam off because, you know, when you've got a big sharp knife in your hand, you don't really have time to let your mind wander. Um, oh, no. So that, that's helpful. Um, and other than that, I mean, I have a little, few little side projects I run sort of, you know, um, talking about, this sort of thing with uh, other closed groups and um, I'm a bit of a gamer at night as a guilty pleasure, mm-hmm. um, but like PC, like not, not console. Come on. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good way to spend a bit of time, but um, unfortunately don't, don't get much time for that, but uh, I do find it's a good way to um, let off a bit of steam and have a bit of fun and yeah. And it's coronavirus safe as well because you're actually socially distant from other people. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sean, for making the time to join me on the podcast and answer a few curly questions about our financial well-being for junior doctors. Thanks for having us, Nana. 
If you really liked that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode. 